0: So last week we we got, we opened with 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. And I've got a a Bible with 26 translations. It's really thick. I've had it for years, but periodically through this uh, sermon I will just rattle off different translations to you and let you know when I'm doing that. But 2 Peter 1, is it chapter one, verse two? I think I'm gonna need my reading glasses for the big Bible, right? This is what we went over last week. Starts out with grace and peace be multiplied unto you. You're looking at the amplified. It's giving the, all the types of peace. Think about this. Grace is God's favor, unmerited favor. and The peace is perfect well-being. All necessary good, all spiritual prosperity, you have freedom from fear. Perfect peace is freedom from agitating passions and freedom from moral conflicts. That's kind of a deep, deep statement, is it not? Freedom from moral conflicts. Be multiplied. This is You can have this multiplied in you. How? It says it by getting knowledge of Jesus or our Father God. And so running through this, it tells you, We'll we'll just go with verse five, and you're looking at the Amplified. It says, for this very reason, add to your diligence the divine promises, to the divine promises. Employ every effort, exercising your belief, that's what faith means, your belief to develop virtue, which means excellence, resolution. And then from there, from there, it's almost like a little list here. You develop knowledge, which is intelligence. And when you exercise knowledge, you develop self-control. This is where I start to just kind of disqualify myself. We're talking about self-control in everything, whether if it's on the roads roads, or eating or, or te- your temper or self-control and what you say about other people. You can ruin your life through your words. You can have no self-control with the words you use. Um, and exercising steadfastness, patience, endurance, exercising, um, you develop godliness, which is what that is, is devotion to God. And so, and godliness, from godliness to brotherly kindness you develop, which is brotherly affection, loving other Christians, and then from that, just straight up Christian love. It says, if these things are in you, and they abound, you're doing them, what happens is it'll make you fruitful when you get the knowledge of the Lord. Well, I never knew that. That, that was kind of disheartening to me. It was kind of disheartening like, well, you know, self-restraint, self-control, uh, you know, piety was one of the, piety, um, <laughs> brotherly affection, um, this is Christian type of affection, but this is what it says for all those people. It says, but if you lack those things, you're blind, you can't see far off, but here's the thing. If you're lacking self-restraint, if you're lacking endurance, patience, devotion to God, uh, love for other Christians, or just straight up love, it says you have forgotten that, that you were purged from your old sins. That's verse nine. Then somehow you've forgotten you were purged from your old sin. Somewhere. The Bible is giving you a reason why you don't have self-restraint or self-control, or you don't love other people enough. And so, how do we make this connection? We spent all last week making this connection. 2 Peter 1:12 says, I will always remind you of this. In other words, you will always forget this. So I'm always gonna remind you of this. Acts 10:43. These are the first Gentiles ever saved outside the Jewish community, Jewish Christians. First Gentiles, they were Italians. It was an Italian family. And so Peter goes in, he takes a lot of his Jewish friends, and they go in. And, and now, so they go in, and Acts 10 43, he preaches the gospel to them. At the end of this sermon, this is what, this is what he says. To him all the prophets testify that everyone who believes in him, all you got to do is believe, okay, receives forgiveness of sins. When he said those words, let's go to verse 44, I picture a crowded room while Peter was still speaking the words forgiveness of sins, the Holy Spirit fell on all who were listening to the message, fell on the Italian's. And the believers from among the the circumcised Jews who came with Peter were surprised and amazed because the free gift of the Holy Spirit had been bestowed and poured out largely on these Italians, these Gentiles. For they heard them talking in unknown tongues and magnifying God. That's what tongues do. They extol and magnify God. That's one thing they do. So think about this. These people never said the prayer of salvation these people never said the prayer of salvation. How do you like it? These people never said the prayer of salvation. These people never said the prayer of salvation. Okay, anyways. I don't know why I did that. but <laughs> They never said it. It just fell. They heard the word forgiveness of sins. Obviously, they believed. Suddenly, they're talking in tongues. Boom. Just, just, just like that. And so, just because they believed. You know, switching gears, there was. it's the most powerful phrase in the New Testament. Forgiveness of sins. Yep. It's, it's what half a communion is about. Yep. It's what he did on the cross yep. for you. It's the only way we can have miracles. And I think because we don't talk about it enough is the reason we're not getting miracles. Great. Headaches are great. Colds are great. Back pains are great. I want wheelchairs. Someday, huh, Lord? We're here because we believe, right? I was thinking that this morning. We believe. We're here. We're here because we believe. And so there was a study done many years ago by non-Christian psychiatrists. This is their opinion. I don't know in the field of psychology how much would come against these findings today. This group of non-Christian psychiatrists studied accident-prone children. You know the child that is always the one that falls off the slide, does it two or three times a year? If the whole class walks under a coconut tree, they would be the one kid the coconut just keeps falling on. So these doctors did an in-depth study on these types of kids. We're talking about accident-prone children. What is the common denominator between all these children that are accident that are accident prone, okay? Even in a small school like Maranatha, 40 to 80 in a class, there's always one that, that gets in triple the issues than all the other kids if you're paying attention. One or two. Here's their conclusion of these doctors. This is an opinion. There's no way I'm saying this is cut and dry. I do agree with the opinion. A very, very high percentage of the children that were accident prone had parents that allowed children to be overindulgent. Very little correction is what they were saying. Before I go farther on this subject, I see people who I thought were some of the greatest parents I had ever seen. Seen a lot of parents, you know, coach a lot of kids. Seen those parents in action. In my opinion, they were were great parents. Turn out, with kids, by the time they're in their 30s, by the time those kids wind up in their 30s, you would never know those, those parents were great parents. Flip it. I've seen parents that never lifted a finger, in my opinion. They never, did, they never confronted their kids. Where I thought their kids, actually from age five to eight, judging their kids, I thought their kids were, you know that's a sin, right? I thought their kids were bratty, right? Right? Well, you know, it's interesting, those kids turn out to be successful, level-headed, stable 35-year-old kids. Parents like to take the credit for the success of their children later in life, and parents also seem to get blamed or even take it on themselves at the failures of their children. I remember watching a popular local preacher years ago, this couple, had incredible high school kids. These were kids, were models of what really a pastor's kid should look like it was almost if these parents were like, they would be like, yes, yes, we are the experts. Our children made it to 18 and they are perfect. Come and talk to us and we will give you godly advice. Right? That was 20 years ago when their kids were 18. I'll just say this. You don't see them taking that kind of credit now. I'm here to tell you today that if your 34-year-old child went sideways and has joined up with the first church of Satan, it isn't over, and you should not receive that con- con- condemnation in regards to the decisions they've made later in li- life. And they like to turn it around and blame you for all those decisions. Millennials. No, sorry. Just because I have two millennials. I blame my parents for stuff. Not face-to-face. God doesn't judge you. God isn't angry with you, and he certainly does not want you to feel the shame that you feel in regarding your children. This group of psychologists said that the parents that did not discipline their children, or even going this far as to say, they didn't even confront them a whole lot. You remember when that philosophy came? Distract them. Hey, Johnny, don't touch the hot stove. Look, look, Johnny, GI Joe. Look, Johnny, don't touch the hot stove. G.I. Joe's attacking Godzilla. (laughs) Johnny, some Johnnies just ain't going to listen. I know, uh, you know, or, or you have one child, you know, wants to touch the stove, obsessed with the stove, obsessed with the stove. And the child's heart is so soft, you know, two, three, four, five, whatever, two, hopefully five, they know not to touch a stove. Two. You just go, no. It doesn't even hurt him because his heart's so soft. <laughs> they know not to touch a stove. But then you sometimes, you have another child that is like, well, that didn't hurt. <laughs> I had both types. But the one now, well, that didn't hurt. You had to just, I'm not saying break their fingers. I'm not saying torture them. I'm not saying put a bruise on them. I'm not even saying put a red mark. It's got to hurt a little bit. No, no, okay? It, it'll hurt you. Ow, it'll hurt, you know? It, there's no other way to do it. The timeout thing. I remember one time, there was a bike, a cute little bike of a six-year-old that one of my children didn't like. and She had a, a souped-up little Barbie, you know, one of those cars, and, and we had figured out how to make it fast. It was faster. It was a really fast little car. It was dangerous. Five-year-old riding it around out there. And I watched her run over this other kid's bike that she didn't like. Just... <laughs> whole neighborhood watching. Go in there and take a time out for an hour. Okay. No problem. Not affected. <laughs> Here was this group of psychologists conclusion, inside a man or a woman, there's always a thing that says when I do something wrong, there is a need for me to be punished. Either me or if I can put the blame on someone else deep inside me there is a need for someone to be punished for what I did. I remember now, remember now this is just one group of non-Christian psychologists, psychiatrists. What these guys are saying is when a child does not receive the discipline, he will invariably subconsciously, subconsciously discipline himself or herself by getting into trouble or an accident. And they don't even know they're doing it. I'm not advocating confront your child at every turn. If I had to do it different with my children, they're 27 and 24, I would have not, I would have done much less confrontation. I would have, but I'm a confronter. That's what I do, I confront people. Just catch me on the brown couch out there. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) I'm joking, okay? It goes both ways. You can take what the Bible says and you can over-discipline your child. Speaking to the parents of the 80s, I personally do not believe that you discipline a four or five-year-old when they are overly tired. If a child purposely comes, purposefully comes against your authority as a parent and they're persistent about it, you know how you have a compliant child and you can have a child that leans more to the rebel side? The rebel without a cause side, even when there's no cause So when you have a child, especially as they get a little older, seven and eight, it is my opinion that if this child is calling for a fight, persistently stepping on your authority, you have to meet that challenge. Based on these findings of these doctors, they're saying if you don't do it, at least correct the child, the child's conscience will take care of it for the child in some type of accident or trouble. You know, when we moved to Singapore and our kids got there, we had traveled for basically two days, 36 hours on planes. My daughter is five or six. She's got strawberry red hair at the time. And uh, we're in these apartments and we're meeting all these native Chinese people from Singapore, English speaking, different culture and uh, you just have to be humble when you go into other cultures. You really do. And 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 so I'm just nervous. You know, we've been traveling, and these people, we want to meet you. They're very nice, and three or four couples, but they're all touching her hair. They want to see what it feels like, that hair. And she's exhausted. She's going, yeah. Hayden, <laughs> hey, come here. No. You know, I'm just... I'm going to get over her. I'm going to get scared. You know, (laughs) she embarrassed me. And you know what? I inappropriately, I punished her because I was embarrassed. Because I was embarrassed. Because of my own pride. And I was so mad. It also happens in adults. Now think about this. If adults do wrong and they know it in their hearts, there's something calling out in their flesh, in their human nature for punishment. Put up the passion picture of Jesus. When you sin and you know you sin, you have to revert back to the cross. I revert to the cross constantly. Notice in 2 Corinthians 10, 5, it says to cast down imaginations. What does it say to do with them? Capture the thought and bring it to the obedience of what? Of that. Of that. Bring it to the cross. You have to bring it to the cross. What does it say to bring bad imaginations? You could call it sinful imaginations to the obedience of Christ. What's the obedience of Christ? Technically, it's New Testament righteousness of God that's been given to you as a gift. You have to know that Jesus suffered for that sin right there. And if you don't know it, I guess he didn't do enough for you right? We're talking about going to the cross, knowing that he became that sin. If you do not revert back to the cross, at least trying to get an imaginary picture of what he did for you, the Bible says he became your sin. If you do not do this, you will have trouble forgiving yourself. Last week, we talked about this subject. Three people in the lobby between services said, they said, in your message today, I want you to let you know that I forgave myself. I didn't talk I didn't really talk much about that last week. So they knew they were carrying bitterness towards them their own selves, not liking themselves. And through understanding that they were completely forgiven by God, they were able to forgive themselves. Do you need to forgive yourself? You know, we have these things that we hang on to and medical science has started to connect to the fact that you go through some type of traumatic instance and you feel a lot of shame from that trauma, yeah. which comes originally from guilt and condemnation. That shame. Yeah. And through something triggered in your body, you develop some type of disease. The trauma broke your heart Jesus said he came to heal the brokenhearted. A lot of times, people, before they can be healed in their physical body, their, their hearts have to be healed. It's a spirit of trauma. Starts with trauma, goes to rejection, to self-hate. There are many psychiatrists that will tell you disease comes from a man or a woman having a lack of peace inside themselves. Because they are punishing themselves for things they have done. I can remember definite seasons in my life where my mind, will, and emotions were literally in a walking civil war about myself. Have you ever known someone that sincerely hates themselves? So you get caught up in a Ferris wheel of condemnation and shame, and you don't get off of it. And soon, while you're on the Ferris wheel of guilt and shame, your own body starts to fight against itself. The white cells start attacking certain parts of the body, and it's almost like a picture of a civil war in your own body, which is transferred from the civil war that went on your mind, will, and emotions because you were announcing yourself guilty, and eventually you get a root of bitterness towards yourself. It is the opinion of many doctors that most autoimmune diseases are caused from this type of intense self-hatred. Those of you who don't know, understand what I'm saying. Just, Actually, someone in the last service, let's just, I, just, I, I, I bind any spirit of trauma in the name of Jesus in this room and we loose you from your assignments and we command you to go. Go so these people can receive their healings. It says in Isaiah 53, 5, the chastisement of our peace was upon him. Can we put the sculpture of Jesus up? The original Hebrew for this scripture says, the punishment necessary for your shalom peace, your wholeness, not just your peace, how whole you are in your mind, in your will, in your emotions. That's what he really looked like, something similar to that? Was that bad? He was unrecognizable. And the chastisement, the punishment necessary for your shalom peace, your wholeness, your deliverance, there's so much in that word, is right there. It's right there. And with the stripes we're healed, the more clearly you see it, the more clearly you will not punish yourself. When you see Jesus as receiving your punishment for that sin, it can go a lot longer into you releasing yourself. There, there, there are women in here who have not released themselves for, uh, I'm just going to say, for abortion. Why bring it up to God? He said he forgot. You, say, you have to let that go. You have to let, you have to forgive yourself for that before you'll ever be able to forgive other people. And you have to know that God holds nothing against you. In regard to your relationship with God, you should never experience any other emotion with him personally in regards to your standing with him outside of peace. Why? Romans 5.1, therefore, being justified by faith because you believe Because justified means not guilty. Because you believe you're not guilty in God's eyes by faith. That's what that scripture says. You have peace with God. That is your standing. It's the only thing you should experience with God in regards to your standing with him. If another preacher makes you feel like that, right, not at peace with God, like you're not at peace with God, that's the law. That's old covenant teaching. Right there in your seat, right now, because of what Jesus did, God is at peace with you. Period. Period. And, and it, if you follow the peace, now I'm not talking about when you follow the peace in your heart, coming to making decisions. I'm talking about in your relationship with God. If you can be at peace with God, You've got a better chance at being at peace with yourself. Tone it down. (laughs) If you can receive all of God's forgiveness, you have a better chance at forgiving yourself. Being at peace with yourself translates at being peace with people around you. You can get yourself to a point where you know there are people out there if they do not like you, they could go so far as to slander you, but you're at peace with them. That's my goal. Pray for your slanderers. Jesus said, pray for your enemies. That means you will have enemies. Pray for them to have what you want. And that keeps your heart clear of bitterness. It does. Now listen, it keeps your heart clear of bitterness. If you pray for your enemies, you can think that you have forgiveness of sins, but if you never really think about the extent to which you have it, do you really know you have it? Because remember, we started with, with the text in Second Peter saying, if you don't have self-restraint, if you don't have brotherly Christian affection, if you don't have steadfastness, if you're missing devotion to God. Somewhere within your thinking, the Bible says you've forgotten your sins were forgiven. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. If you really know in your heart that you were forgiven, the Bible says in 2 Peter, your emotions will at least be at peace with God. And that is the start. You have to personalize the cross for you. I can promise you, the more established you are in the gift of righteousness and God seeing you as complete in him, the harder it is for the devil to accuse you with with either your own thoughts or coming from other Christians. I'm not saying you won't get accused. I'm not saying you won't get lied about. What I'm saying is them coming at you like that will not affect you as much because you know you've got nothing but a smile coming from God. The devil's name in Hebrew is Hasatan. They call call him Hasatan in the Old Testament. That means he's a prosecutor of the law. What law? The Old Covenant law. He brings the old covenant to you and says, you've fallen short here, you've fallen short on this rule, you've fallen short on that commandment, and now not only do you not get your prayers answered, but now you don't get protection. That's why your child is sick, and he gets you in your thinking to where you don't have hope, but a fearful expectations of bad things that are going to happen because you don't know how completely forgiven you are then the devil finds that you're an easy target because you just accept all this condemnation and shame he puts on you. And can I tell you what? He will never stop. He will never stop. Contrary to what most people believe, people sometimes say if you preach the forgiveness of sins so hard, people become licentious and they say, let's head out to the lookout after the service. Who knows where the lookout is? Don't raise your hand. No, it's a, it's a bar up in Maple Grove In the middle of a neighborhood Never been there That was far That was, came far after my Things I did Let's head out to the lookout after the service All our sins are forgiven Four pitchers of beer Somebody gets a deewee on the way home That's not the purpose of the sermon So we all go have a party The purpose of it keeps you close to God. When you know you're gonna get his mercy from the mistake you made, you don't run away from God. You know you still have peace with God. And so, you know, Luke 7, 44 through 48, remember the lady that washed Jesus' hair? Uh, Or washed his hair. No, washed his feet with her hair right, with using thousands of dollars of perfume. It was literally worth, I think, $30,000. And you know what he said in the message? He said, impressive, isn't it? She was forgiven many, many sins, and shows she is very, very grateful. If the forgiveness is minimal, the gratitude is minimal. Let me paraphrase that. The more you know you're forgiven, the more you will love God, love yourself, and love others. The less you know you're forgiven, the less you'll love God, love yourself, and love others. I mean, that's what he just said. Another way to to say it is Jesus seems to be saying, if you don't understand how forgiven you are, it's impossible to be thankful for the forgiveness that you have. Hebrews 8, 6, going into the new covenant. There is a new covenant written in the New Testament two different times. And it, this is where it starts in Hebrews 8 and it's in Hebrews 10. It's, it's a more excellent ministry, Hebrews 8, 6. It's a more superior, more excellent than the old covenant. It's an agreement. And Jesus is the mediator. He's superior, more excellent, and it is an act, and rests upon better promises. It's talking about this covenant. The second half of that, and I'm reading out of five different translations. Hebrews 8, 6. By how much... He is the mediator of a better covenant. It is the covenant of which he is the intermediate. intermediate, Moving on. The Moffat says, owing to the fact that he mediates to a superior covenant, a higher agreement, a better agreement with man than the older one, and so it goes on to say, you're looking at the Amplified, if the Old Covenant had been without defect, if that first covenant had been without defect, that means it was defective. It was defective. People get mad when I say that. I'm just telling you what's in the Bible. The Old Testament had been free from imperfection is what another version calls it. In the next verse, it Hebrews 8.8, 8, he found fault with the people because they couldn't execute their end of it. You get me? Everybody thinks I'm bashing on the Old Testament. No, I'm not. You can read the Old Testament. Just know how to apply it to the new. God says, I'll make a new covenant then because man couldn't live up to it. And Hebrews 8.8, 8, this is what it says. He finds fault with them. Them, man. Okay, when he says, behold, the days I will, I will come, says the Lord, I will make and ratify a new covenant. You're looking at the Amplified, Hebrews 8, 8, I will make a new covenant. And you know what? With the house of Israel, I'm not going to take 10 minutes and, and convince you with scripture that you've been grafted in as the body of Christ to the house of Israel. Are you aware of that? Okay? So this is your present tense covenant that you're living under okay, that we're going to hit. This is your covenant. Also, all Hebrew, Hebrew Christians that have Jesus in their hearts. The book is written to Hebrews with Jesus in their hearts. That is who the book is written to. You have been grafted in as, that's like a fourth of the book of Acts. Hebrews eight ten. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. I will imprint my laws upon their minds, even upon their innermost thoughts and understanding and engrave them upon their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. You know, I've heard preachers say, he's going to put the Old Testament, the old covenant law, even, even harder into your mind than it was when it was on stone. And can I just tell you, they're wrong, they're wrong all day. I'll go public and argue they're wrong. Right, we, we, can, we, can, we can have it a debate. There's four laws in the New Testament that he's going to write on your heart. This is what he's talking about, okay? You have the law of the spirit of life, Romans 8, 2. The law of the spirit of life, which is in Christ Jesus, has freed you from the law of sin and death. What's the law of sin and death? When you sin, you die. When you sin, you die. The law of the spirit of life, this is an actual scripture, has freed you from it, all right? All right? i got to get me a TCNT Bible. It translates Romans 8-2 as through your union with Christ, you have the law of a life-giving spirit. You have the ability to give life that comes out of you. You have a new creation in you that is not judged by God as anything but perfect. And you have the ability to, to be led by the Holy Spirit to give life to people. The Weymouth says you have the Spirit's law. Two translations here that has set you free. The law of the Spirit of life lifts you out from the law of sin and death. The law of the Spirit of life, listen to this, the Beck, lifts you out of the rule of sin that kills. The law of the Spirit of life lifts you out of a rule. There's a rule if you sin. You die, the rule of sin that kills. Are you understanding what I'm saying? Okay? Romans 8.3, it just spells it out right here. In the NEP, what the law could never do because us, our lower nature robbed the law of its potency. That's why it wasn't successful. It wasn't because God didn't make it perfect. He made it perfect. Man couldn't live up to it. We robbed it. It says God has done by sending his own son in a form like that of our sinful nature and then he became a sacrifice for all of our sin. It's a lot of scripture, isn't it? You know we're doing over 50 scriptures. We are, so you're at least getting the word, right? He says in Hebrews 8.10, he's gonna put that law in your mind. He's gonna write it on your heart, scribe it on your heart, engrave it in your heart. He says I will be to them a God and they shall be my people. You know, Hebrews 10.10 says you've been made holy, past tense, consecrated, sanctified through the offering made once and for all, Jesus Christ. It says past tense holy. See, we get it. If someone gets saved, we say you got to get holy. We don't realize God views you as holy the minute you become a new creation, Hebrews 8 10, for this is the covenant I will make them with them. I will. Ten Commandments was, thou shalt not. This is nothing but God saying, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. You just have to do one thing, and we'll get to that. I will imprint my laws on their minds. And even upon their innermost thoughts and understanding and engrave them on their hearts, I will be their God and they shall be my people. If you look back into the Old Testament, any time he said, I'm gonna be their God, they shall be my people, miracles always followed within two or three chapters. He's going to be writing things on your heart. He's going to write the law of faith and scribe it on your mind. What's the law of faith? Romans three twenty seven. Here's the second law. First one was law of spirit of life. Where's boasting then? It is excluded. You can't boast. By what law? Of works? No. The law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that you are, you know what that word justify means? Not guilty. You are not guilty by faith. Just because you believe. You are not, you are not, you're not guilty. You're not guilty without the deeds of the law. Already not guilty. Outside of the rules and regulations. Love is also a law of the new covenant that he writes on your minds and inscribes on your heart. What do I mean by the law of love? Under the old covenant, you don't have the Holy Spirit showing you when someone's down how to encourage them and lift them up. You don't have that. You don't have the Holy Spirit saying under the old covenant, pay for the man's groceries in front of you. You know, Old Testament love is not when you apologize to someone to move on from a situation when deep down you think you did nothing wrong, just but, but you want out of the drama to being the bigger man. That's not Old Testament love. And we're going to come back to the law of love. The last law that he's going to inscribe on your heart, if you're open to it, is the law of liberty. In James 2, liberty. Galatians 5.1, you know, in, in the amplified. In this freedom, Christ has made you free and completely liberated you. From what? From the old covenant. Stand fast and do not be hampered and ensnared and submit again to the, a yoke of slavery. You can study that out yourself. That's the old covenant. It's called the yoke of slavery, a yoke of bondage. It says in Galatians 5, 1 in the King James, stand fast therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free. Hebrews eight eleven, 11. And it will never more be necessary, this is the new covenant, for each one to teach his neighbor and his fellow citizen and each one his brother saying, know the Lord by experience for all will know me, God says. How? From the least to the greatest. How come? Well, it's because of what he says in the next verse. All right? But, It's about a consciousness you walk in. It's always God's style to start with the least. I believe if you're the least, he prioritizes you. Mm. He does. Try it. I know it goes against you, thinking, I'm nothing. I do this all the time. I'm nothing. I don't deserve anything. But Jesus deserves it. And he died for me. He took my place. God actually says it's it, as if I was crucified with him, as if I actually went through it myself, right? So I receive it. That's right, I don't deserve it. That's right, I don't deserve it, okay? But I receive it anyways. And he's willing to give it to me anyways, according to what the Bible says. See so what says in Hebrews 8.11 in the King James. It says, brother saying know the Lord, that means experience. The second know shall know me from the least to the greatest. That means intuitively know him. Intuitively know him. Because you're in, connected with him. The, here's Hebrews 8.12. None of that happens. You won't know him intuitive, intuitively. He's not going write, to write the law of faith on your, on your heart and in your mind. He's not going to write the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. He's not going to write the law of liberty. He's not going to put the law of love. He's not, unless you know this. Here it is. For I will be merciful to your unrighteousness and your sins and iniquities I remember no more. If you believe that, you get the things above that. If you believe that, you get the things above that. If you don't believe that, then it's impossible to get the things above that. You don't get the things above that because you don't think you got any mercy. You, don't think, you think he remembers when you gossiped yesterday. No, he doesn't. He doesn't. So quit reminding him. You think he remembers. If you don't believe Hebrews eight 12, you're gonna have trouble receiving the law of the spirit of life, the law of faith, and the law of liberty, and yes, my longtime nemesis, the law of love. You're gonna have trouble receiving that. You're going to have trouble walking in those things, hearing from him. According to Second Peter 1, you're going to have trouble with your devotion to God, your self-restraint, your brotherly kindness to other Christians because that's what we opened the whole sermon with. This is a catchphrase. If you do not believe this, this is the catchphrase of the new covenant. If you do not walk, if you do not believe this, you do not walk in the earlier spoken promises. Look at look at in the King James, Hebrews 8, 12. What does that word for means? It means because in the Greek. So you're going to get all those things above that because I'm going to be merciful to your unrighteousness and your sins and iniquities I'm not going to remember anymore. But not if you don't believe it. Not if you don't believe it. This is the new covenant. I haven't taught on this in two years. God is saying, because I forgive you of all your sins, past, present, and future, you're going to know me better. Then you're going to know I'm your God, and then you will know what to do from your heart. How strong Hebrews eight twelve 12 is taught to you, how strongly it enters your heart, how strong God is able to write it on people's hearts, and how well they're able to respond to God as their God is how much they will know him Intuitively. How strong you believe verse 12 is the clause that makes everything happen. We're talking about a righteousness consciousness that causes you to know God better and it keeps you in the game and the war after your mistakes. As wonderful as that is, God wants you blessed. He wants you to be able to not just receive blessing, take blessing. David said, God, if you give me an itemized account of every sin I commit, I can't stand. Even David knew God's not making an account or a list up in heaven that you're gonna be judged for. That's ridiculous. Then he's lying in Hebrews eight twelve. He's lying or confusing us. It's not that confusing. I'm not angry either. When you know the extent of absolute forgiveness of your sins, and the extent is your sins and iniquities, he's going to have mercy on, and your lawless deeds of unrighteousness from yesterday, earlier today, he doesn't remember. When you know that, when you really believe that, your faith is stronger, higher, you have a more muscular faith. Remember in 2 Peter, he was like, exercise this and exercise that, and you build on this. Build. Exercise, build, exercise, right? Let's go back to the love. Let's let's close it with this. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Really, it's a prayer of agreement, but on top of that, we're speaking his word which can bring power into your life immediately. Just don't say this rote. We're talking about the law of love, but you will not walk in the law of love until you understand how much God loves you. You won't till you receive his forgiveness and forgive yourself. So paraphrasing, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8, well, 1 and 2, Paul says, I might speak with tongues, but if I don't have love, it's like a loud cymbal. Then Paul says, I can have faith that actually could remove a physical mountain, but you know what, if I don't have love, I'm nothing. I'm nothing, okay? And so you go into this chapter here And I like to flip what we're about to say together because we have to understand that God is not going to ask you to treat other people with these characteristics and not look at you the same way every day. You know what I mean? Don't judge other people. Well, thanks God, as you judge me. And not have the same overflowing love for you and all his mercy as he wants us to have for others. You have to remember, this is how he feels about you. Everything we're saying. Everything we're saying. So we're gonna start on, when I say three, it's gonna be on screens. Somebody in the last service told me to slow down. But people were, had trouble keeping up. It's kind of a long, but I've taken the 26 translations and I've just put the best stuff in there, right? And so let's say it together, right? It reminds you how he, how he feels about you, but it reminds me, you're gonna see when, when I apply it to me, it's, it's my weaknesses, right? So, you ready? One, two, three. God's love for me is very patient and very kind. God's love for me never boils over with jealousy. God is never arrogant towards me. God is never conceited with me, and God does not put on airs with me. That means God doesn't play games with you, all right? God is never rude to me. God is never unmannerly with me. God's love in me is never selfish, God does not insist on having his own way because of his love. He'll never make you do it. It'll always be your decision. God's love in me never insists on its own rights, is never self seeking, is not easily provoked. Let's say that again for me. It's not easily provoked. God's love has no evil thoughts for you. God's love has for you no malice. God's love is never provoked. You can't provoke his love. You cannot provoke him. Are you hearing me? You can't provoke God out of his love is what that's supposed to mean. God loves me so much he keeps no score of wrongs. God loves to- God's love towards me is not irritable. It's never resentful. It's not touchy. It does not keep account of evil. God's love of me does not gloat over other men's sins. God's love in me is never glad when others have trouble. Let's go over that one just for me again. God's love in me is never glad when others have trouble. He loves me so much he bears all things, overlooks my faults. God's love is slow to expose. Oh, let's say that again. Online, if you like it, give me some weird emoji. Not a fist pump, just a weird emoji. God is always eager to believe the best in me. It's always there for me, no matter what. There's nothing God's love in me cannot face. God's love for me is hoping all things, ensuring all things. It gives me power to endure everything in the name of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord.